Well, good morning, church, and welcome one more time. Uh, what I would like to do this morning, before we go into the content of the message, I'd like to invite my good friend, Joe Hayes, our Fulton Heights location pastor, to come on up, right? Exactly. Welcome. Like, you didn't even ask for that. All right. Yeah. Um, so today is a special occasion that we are marking, that we want to honor and take a moment to celebrate what God is up to, because this is also, in addition to Jackie's last day here at Kenwood, it's Joe's last day worshiping together physically in the same building. Uh, and as next week, you're going to head on over there, start working some of the glitches out of the system, turn the computer on, etc. figure stuff out. Uh, and so we're going to be, we're going to be worshiping together, but separately next week. And so we want to recognize that and, uh, and honor and bless uh, Joe and Jackie and the work uh, that God is going to accomplish through them. So if we could pray for you and bless you along the way, I want to invite you, church, to kind of extend a hand or two out into Joe's direction as we offer him this blessing and prayer. God, we thank you uh, we thank you for Joe's heart in saying yes to start this new church, saying yes to the Great Commission to go and make disciples in this new community. We thank you for, uh, for this heart that says yes to bringing people who are far from you, Lord, to new life in your son, Jesus Christ. God, we also pray uh, for, uh, for every single one of those 2,791 people we've identified who don't yet know you, Jesus, uh, that uh, through the work of Jackie and Joe and so many countless others, um, that you would bring those people into this new life in your son, Jesus. And it's in his resurrection power that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Uh, just some, one more time, right? Come on. This is good. This is good. Uh, just some dates if you're kind of keeping track of some things on, uh, on a calendar. Uh, of course, September 12, the Fulton Heights Church grand opening and our fall launch here and there. Mark that one down. That's the Sunday after Labor Day. Also, August 22. Um, August 22 is when we're asking everybody who is going to make that their church home. Uh, to start worshiping there. It might not 100% like everything work together, but that's why we practice. That's why we're working through it. So be a little gracious along the way as well. But August 22, if, you want, if you're going to be attending Fulton Heights, show up there, not here, at 9.15 and 10.45. If you're not sure, and like, man, I live, I've talked to so many people, I live kind of halfway in between, you know, which church should I attend? You know, where should I go? What I like to ask people is, listen, what's going to be easier for you to invite your one to? Like the person that God has put in your life so that you would lead them to Jesus, what's going to be easier to invite them to? In Kentwood here or, uh, or Fulton Heights? And there's, there's your answer. If you're still not sure, listen, the answer is Fulton Heights. N nothing beats the joy of, of starting a brand new church. It's so incredibly exciting. And, and together we all get to do that together. So August 22... September 12th. Joe's going to be in the upper lobby. He would love to talk to you uh, more about that opportunity. Today we continue on in our series, Good Question. We kicked it off last week uh, by just kind of pointing out the reason why questions are so important is, is that growth is found on the other side of a good question. We kind of use that counselor story to like say, listen, that's what a good counselor does. They ask good questions and to help us grow, to help us change, to help us be transformed. And Jesus actually is, is very similar to that. I mean, Jesus came and he asked over a hundred questions to those of us who follow him. And I submit to you, it's not for his sake he wanted to know the answer, but 
but it's for our sake to help us grow, to help us change, to help us be transformed. So last week we heard the question that Jesus asked his disciples in a storm, why are you so afraid? Which is a great question to ask the disciples in a storm. Like, come on, Jesus, are you serious? And he goes, no, no, why are you afraid? You've seen me do some incredible things. You've seen me ask, ask a paralyzed man to stand up. You've seen me offer forgiveness to, for sins. Now in this storm, why are you so afraid? Is this maybe not a storm thing? Is this maybe a faith thing, right? That was last week. This week, this week we're going to see, this is Miracle Sunday, this week, we're going to see God move powerfully in the lives of these two gentlemen in our story. This week, we see God show up and ask the question, do you believe I'm able to do this? Never mind, never mind about caring. You know that I care. Do you believe that I can? All right, so here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus had just visited a little sick girl. And the thing was, by the time he got into the house, she had passed. And so Jesus alone goes into the house, but he comes out with the two of them. So obviously that attracted a crowd. Rumors are swirling. There's people all over him, including the two guys that we're just about to read in Matthew 9, verse 27. It says this, that as Jesus went on from there, his two blind men followed him. And they called out, have mercy on us. Son of David. His two blind guys are following Jesus. There's a, there's a lot there. Uh, if it seems to you like there's a, there's a lot of people in the Bible who are, uh, who are particularly struggling of that one affliction, blindness, you would be correct. I looked into this one earlier this week because I thought, like, it just seems like there's a lot of blind people in the Bible. Uh, one commentator was, was writing about it, and he said, yeah, that's it's probably true. It does seem like there's disproportionately more people struggling of that affliction than today. And that was because of two reasons, hygiene and antibiotics. He said, uh, he said what would happen if people would work out in the fields, most people worked out in the fields, these clouds of, like, gnats or flies would swarm all around. They'd bite it infection would begin and they lose their sight as as a result of it oftentimes people blamed individuals for their own blindness that's not the case but it happened anyway they kind of who sinned this person or their father right but jesus comes up and jesus comes up and he has mercy on them i uh, i don't know what it's like i don't know what it's like to go through life with that affliction the closest that i came i was I was an eighth grade student in my earth science class. And I, I was not a good student. I am not an earth scientist by any stretch of the imagination. That's going to be real clear here in a moment. I was obsessed. I don't know why. I was obsessed with this little like, like eye wash station, right? Like an eighth grader, like I was fixating on it. Like, tell me more. I've never seen it in a classroom before. It was off, it was off here in the corner. And I'm like, teacher, I've got a, I've got a question. Uh, yes, eye wash station. Is that like special cleanser or something like that? Or is it, no, it's, it's just water. Like, just forget about the eye wash station, Dirk. Back to the lesson. I'm like, okay, follow-up question. Can I drink it? Is it, the, is it clean water? Is it, don't, it's, it's just water. Don't drink it. And that's what the fountain is for. Okay, one more follow-up question. Instead of going outside to get a drink from the fountain, wouldn't it be easier if I just use this station right over here, if it's just water? It's like, stop fixating on the eye wash station. 
Okay, question withdrawn, and I'll sit. A little bit later in the school year, we're doing like the, the hydrochloric acid kind of thing where you put it on the seashells and it like bubbles up, and it was pretty cool. Well, as middle schoolers do, the kid next to me flings his arms like this, knocks the beaker over, some of it spills on a shirt, and, and, and even into my eyes. It, it didn't go anywhere close to my eyes, but I'm like, this is my chance. This is my opportunity to go to the eye wash station. Close, cover my eyes, close my eyes. I'm running over. I'm making a big deal, making sure the teacher knows I'm not making this up. This is not a drill. I'm using the eye wash station. And in my enthusiasm, running to the station, I got so excited. I overran it, smashed into the wall. I fall over. The whole class is laughing at me. And in the hoopla of everything that happened, I totally forgot that I had acid in my eyes. And I still, to this day, have never used an eye wash station. Being blind is hard, right? <laughs> for just a moment, for just a moment. And okay, but that was, that was a moment, and it wasn't that hard. I've been getting into the Olympics this year, as everybody else has, I know, and those physical feats are impressive. What's more impressive than Olympians is Paralympians. I read this interview with a, a swimmer who had lost like 99% of her sight. She could basically just respond to light and dark, and that's it. Uh, I, I want to show you this because I, wanna, I want you to see the high-trust environment that these Olymp Paralympic swimmers are put into. This is uh, McLean Herme. She's a swimmer. She's coming back, and you can kind of see the patriotic noodle tapping her. What's going on here? Is the interview asked, how do you know when to turn around in the pool before you get to the concrete edge? And she says, high trust. I've got a teammate, somebody who, who comes with me that I trust. They tap the, my head or, or on my back, and when I feel the tap, I turn immediately. No hesitation, zero. It's that high of a trust environment. Tap, turn. If there's any delay, at best I might shave some time off, lose, lose the race. At worst, I could go into the concrete wall. I could get injured or worse. High trust environment. Follow-up to that was, how do you, how do you stay straight in, in your lane? And she just deadpans and says, practice. A lot of practice, which is like the most boss answer on this whole thing, right? Like, holy smokes. Anyway, I want to come back. This picture, high trust environment. These two guys, these two guys come up to Jesus, and what do they say? Jesus, and they use a phrase, son of David. That's an important phrase. Uh, John, a different gospel, points out that the religious leaders were so fed up with this Jesus movement that they said anybody who, anybody who refers to Jesus as the Messiah, as the one, as the son of David, is going to be thrown out of the synagogue. Church, the synagogue was the social safety net for these two guys. When they followed Jesus, and remember, blind guys following Jesus. How does that work? They're just they're following the crowd that, that Jesus has attracted so far. They're following along. When they cry out, Jesus, son of David, they're making a declaration, but they're also burning a bridge. They're burning up their entire social safety net, knowing that they're going to get thrown out of this synagogue. They're living day to day, hand to mouth, and they're willing to risk that based 
on who they believe that Jesus is, they're willing to stake their life on it. Jesus, son of David, I trust you. I trust you more than a Paralympic teammate. I trust you more than the religious leaders who feed me and give me a little bit to live day to day. Jesus, I trust you. And they don't just say it. They, they call out. The word there, the Greek word there, krazo. They call out. Krazo means to yell out. Krazo is like yelling with an animalistic cry, Jesus! Revelation 22 uses this word to describe the sound that a woman makes in the throes of childbirth with everything they have in them. Jesus, son of David, have, have mercy. Have mercy on us. That's all we're looking for. Not that we, not that we deserve this. Not that we've earned this. Not that we could. Charles Spurgeon says, you will never win a blessing from God if you demand it as if you had a right to it. Mm. That was a good word. Okay, verse 28. Let's move on in the story. And when Jesus had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, our question for this morning, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. In their sight, was restored. Let me just tell you, I guess, what I hope for you, that my prayer for you leaving this week, just in one sentence, if you remember nothing else out of this time, I hope it's this one. I want you to leave here with the ceiling of your expectation on God to be raised. Because I think for a lot of us, our ceiling on what we expect of God is just, is far too small, is far too shallow. And so we're going we're gonna to try to raise that up here a little bit. What I want us to see is that Jesus heals them, these very important four words, according to their faith. According to your faith. Let it be done. It's not according to your income. It's not according to your GPA. It's not according to how much you've given or how much you've sacrificed or how much you've earned or how you've lived or how much you've Beat yourself up over sins of the past. It's not according to, it's according to your faith. I want us to see that faith, faith moves the heart of God. We got to also see, and that's a one-way street, not a two-way street. Faith moves the heart of God does. But there is going to be these instances where we go to God in faith, maybe an itty-bitty faith, but in faith, and the heart of God is moved. God responds, and we may not always see it. See, the promise of God is that his heart is moved. The promise of God isn't that he will function as if a lever has been pulled and do exactly what he says. Sometimes the way that God's heart is moved, the way that God has responded, is so infinitely grander than anything we could have even asked for because our imagination is too limited. He has responded. We haven't seen it that way. It doesn't mean that he didn't respond. A two-way street then would say, well, maybe, maybe your faith is wrong. Maybe you didn't faith hard enough. Maybe you didn't do it right. 
It's a one-way street, though, not a two-way street. We don't go back to the faith and say, well, I guess I, guess it was, I, I, guess I didn't do it right. I, I guess I didn't faith hard enough because God didn't answer the way that I responded to. My church uh, that I went to a long, long time ago when I was a little kid, I remember, I remember like hearing, um, it was like a thing we did for a little while. Uh, everybody would have to pray standing up. All the time, which we do that. We do that around here. I'm going to ask you to stand up at some point, you know, and we'll stand up. We'll pray together before we go into the last song. But that's not like a requirement thing. So, so for a little while now, the, the church that I was at was like, listen, no, you have to stand up. Otherwise, otherwise, like God wouldn't hear you. And so we kind of have Bible studies on all the people who, uh, all the people who prayed in the Old Testament. And a lot of them, they did. They stood, they stood up. So it's like, well, you shouldn't sit down and praying. But listen, like it doesn't take a master's degree in theology to start to realize that doesn't like quite pass the, the theological smell test, right? You know? And so eventually somebody Googles it, and it's like a lot of people sat and prayed. A, a lot of people... Uh, you know, Solomon sat and prayed. David sat before the Lord. People pray in all kinds of different postures, and all of it honors God because he made our bodies. And so we just kind of stopped standing and praying all the time. But we never, like, went back and did the work and said, why did we fall for it? You know, why did we think that, like, God could hear us up here, but somehow wouldn't hear us down here? Why do we think that, like, we have to end a prayer a certain way, right, with the right sign-off? Like, in Jesus' name, no, no, you got to pray Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, why, why do we think that, like, we got to pray long enough, just stretch it out? Why do we think that we got to, like, use certain words to, like, pull on these levers? Faith moves the heart of God. True. It's the faith that moves the heart of God. Not how we do it. We're going to go to the, see these two blind guys. These, these guys are going to teach us, teach us a couple things about faith. These guys are going to teach us three things about faith. The first one, as it relates to raising the ceiling of our faith, the size of your request reveals the strength of your faith. These two guys, they're willing to burn their bridges. They're willing to burn up their safety net to meet Jesus because they believe that Jesus can do for them what no human being could ever possibly else do for them. The size of their request reveals the strength of their faith. This is a good time to think about like that challenge, the massive thing, right? The giant elephant in every room that you walk into. The thing that you carry around all the time. It's a relational thing. It's a financial thing. Listen, it's a physical thing. It could be a spiritual thing. And the thing that I've learned about the spiritual things that, that we carry with us, the doubt that we carry with us, Oftentimes people come to me and they're like, I can't, I haven't felt God. I don't know where he is. He hasn't showed up in a long, long time. Maybe ever. And so I'm now wondering, like, is God even real? And the question, or the answer that I often respond with is what have you, like, what have you trusted him with lately? You know? Like, what have you, what have you put into his hands and saying, if it weren't for God to show up, I need him to show up. I trust him to show up. And oftentimes, if the answer is, well, nothing, it's kind of why we feel like we have a, a nothing sort of faith. The size of your request reveals the strength 
of your faith. It's a problem, right? When we ask, do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able to do this is the question of Jesus. And, and those of us, if you've been to church more than six times in your life, you're like, I know the answer to this one. Yes, I got that one. Of course I believe Jesus. And then we turn around and our actions and our words, they kind of, they kind of betray us. Because our actions and our words kind of, kind of go back and say like, there's nothing else we can do. Or all we can do now is Pray. And man, doesn't, if that doesn't betray our, our heart behind what we believe that God can do, all we can do now is pray. You know, we go to God, and he goes, when you're in trouble now, if, if I'm all you got left, right? Raising the ceiling on our expectation of God. What you pray about reveals what you think about God. Let me tell you, let me tell you, I guess something that, something I've seen, something that I do. You know, when my heart starts to wander and my prayer life starts to get reduced, the things that I pray for, traveling mercies sound familiar to anybody else in the room. No, God bless you. I'm glad to hear that. I know that some of you know what I mean by that. If you're wondering what a traveling mercy is, this is something that Christianese for keep me safe on the road. Help me to get to work safely. You know, when my heart wanders, when my heart veers away from God, I start to ask God for only the things that I think are really going to happen anyway. God, just help me to get to work on time. Grant me traveling mercies. And I kind of know, right? And you kind of know. You know, outside of the intervention of God, I think I'm probably going to get to work just safe anyway. Like, that's probably going to happen whether I prayed for it or not. But I, like, pull back and I lower the ceiling on God. I lower the expectation on God, lower the bar so I know he can hit it every time. But I don't think that actually honors God in the process. I think that actually insults God. He's saying, the best that you can ask for, like you're going to come into my throne room in heaven, approach me in the, in the hallowed name of my son, King Jesus, and you're going to come in, you're going to ask me for traveling mercies? Is that how you want to spend your time here today? Right? But we do it. The next thing, right, we, we, you know, fold our hands and close our eyes and say, Lord, bless this food unto my body. And that's fine. I like the, the ritual. I like the habit of, like, praying before meals. But unless you're looking down and seeing, like, a bag of greasy cheeseburgers, the food will be blessed unto your body. We're going to raise the bar today, raise the ceiling on our expectation of God. Because what you pray for reveals the strength of your faith. So it's a size thing that these two blind guys teach us. They're going for it, Lord. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for healing. We're looking for a replacement to the social safety of the synagogue, and we're doing that loudly. It's a size thing, and number two, it's a persistence thing. God responds to a faith that persists, even when it looks as if nothing's just changed. God responds to a faith that persists, even when it looks as if nothing has changed. There's an interesting order in this story that as Jesus goes on from healing the sick girl, the two blind men followed along. They were following. They were in the crowd that follows along. And then Jesus had gone indoors. And then the blind guys reappear. 
also indoors. Sometimes, like, I'll skip right over that, not, not realizing, like, like, what just happened. Jesus had exited the big crowd, and he pulls his little entourage with him indoors. Just, just the inside, just maybe the disciples. And somehow, these two blind guys found him indoors. The, the picture that I get is like the big crowd following Jesus through the airport terminal, and he goes up to the Delta Sky Lounge. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? I would love to go into a Delta Sky Lounge. I have no idea what's in there, but it sounds impressive because there's somebody posted up outside with a clipboard or a computer. There's a stanchion with a little belt across and a frosted glass. That's what these guys are seeing. It's actually not at all what these guys are. That's totally historically inaccurate. But like the picture is there. Jesus goes indoors to get away from the crowd, yet somehow, and we can't overlook that fact, somehow they show up indoors because they are persistent. They're not taking no for an answer. And I think it's that kind of size of request and also persistence of faith that honors God. And he responds to it. God responds to that persistence even when it looks as if nothing has changed. Jesus even, he tells us this story in Luke 18. The story of this, of this judge, this crooked, shady, unrighteous judge. And this poor little widow who just wants nothing more than, than for this judge to do his job. I'm just looking for justice, judge. That's all that I want. Can you just show up? Can you just do this thing for me? And the judge says, get out of here. I don't want to hear from you. So the next day, she shows up. Same request. Follow-up question. Would you grant me the justice that I'm looking for? Would you do your job? Get out of here. She follows him home, meets him in the market, the grocery store, follows him to a doctor's appointment, dentist's appointment. Would you, just, would you just do your job? As Jesus is telling the story, he's making up the story, the parable, in order to drive home a point. And Jesus tells the story, and he's going, you know, eventually, the judge says yes. Not because he had a change of heart, not because he's suddenly a good judge, not because he's interested in doing his job, because the woman was driving him bananas. And Jesus looks at us, and he's saying, could you imagine if the judge was good? Could you imagine if the judge loved that widow to the point of death and back again? Could you imagine how much more your Father in Heaven wants to say yes. Your persistence in that big ask, that request, it doesn't scare God off. It honors Him. It honors Him. Several years ago, we did one of these baptism weekends. And around here we do it, and we ask people who are moved by God, in that moment, come on forward. We want to celebrate with you. Even if you've been a Christian for like 37 seconds, we want to celebrate with you. And, and others have thought it through and prayed it through and have decided to make that decision and signed up ahead of time. And so it's this one baptism weekend, and it's just like, oh, you know, not, nothing like those. Nothing like them. And uh, I get to church kind of early. Not as early as the worship team, but I get, I get to church kind of early. And I got to church, and this couple... 
this couple who had been attending for a while now, this couple was like posted up in their spots. You guys know like your spots. Everybody has your spot. I get it, right? Might as well just write your name on the chair. But, but they had their spot like all picked out. And it was, it was crazy early. And, uh, and, I, and they'd been coming to church for a while, so I could ask them. And I said, you, you guys know like what time church starts, right? I, this is not a time change weekend, you know? You're, you're here very early, like pre-sound check kind of early. And they said it's baptism weekend. My son-in-law that we have been praying for, for years, well over a decade, has made the decision to show the world that he has been raised with Christ in this act of baptism. And we will not miss out. And we want to get here and we want to claim our seats and do the stakeout thing because we want to show our support and to celebrate. And I just wonder, like, how many times they thought about giving up on him. How many times they thought, my prayer is not clearing the ceiling, let alone making it all the way to heaven. It's not worth it. It's too much. We're asking God to melt a heart of stone. Who does that? It's too big. It's too much. We're going to back up. And they didn't. Day in and day out, they kept coming to God like this old widow just asking the righteous judge who loves that man to death and back to show up in his life and to melt that heart until he finally did. Church, let's raise our expectation on God. Raise that ceiling up. I want you to leave here today and to make those big requests of God that reveal our strong faith. I want you to pray those audacious prayers. God, cure the cancer. God, restore the marriage and the relationship. God, provide new houses to come on the market. God, bring that child who I haven't spoken to for years or even decades home again. May he even be on the front porch when I drive in and from church today. Make those requests of God. He isn't intimidated by it. He's honored by it. Raise the ceiling of our expectation on God. And as we do, may we not forget that it wasn't, it wasn't the faith, the power of the faith that manipulated the heart of God to, to movement. It was the direction. Yes, it's a big audacious ask from these two guys. Yes, they're persistent in following after Jesus. But they went to Jesus. It's not the power of your faith, but it's the object of your faith, where it's directed. These two guys, they go to Jesus. No one else could provide them restoration. Their faith was in Jesus. Jesus said, this is, this is what we need. We need mustard seed kind of faith. A mustard seed is so small that I didn't bring it because I knew you wouldn't be able to see it anyway. But just that tiny amount of faith in God's heart is moved. It's not the power. It's not the size of that faith. It's what it's directed towards. It's the object of that faith. When that tiny little itty-bitty mustard seed kind of faith intersects with God's ocean of faithfulness, watch out. Lives are changing. 
Hearts are restored. These two guys receive sight. If we're going to go out of here today, we're going to raise the expectation of God in our prayers. Everybody just stand up. Let's go to him right now. Let's pray. Let's make those big asks, big requests before God. God, we come to you now. God, and you know the cry, that animalistic crazo cry on each one of our hearts. You know what that thing is that we maybe not even dared to say it out loud because who asks for something like that? Spirit, but you hear it and you're responding to it even now. God, we, we pray specifically for the, for the start of this new church in Fulton Heights. God, we pray in an audacious, kingdom-sized kind of way for 2,791 people who we've identified don't yet know you in that community to come into a lasting and saving relationship with you. God, we pray this fall as our, as our students start to come back, Lord, and new students come. We pray for hundreds of students to realize that you love them to death and back again to new life, that they would discover faith in these next four years instead of lose it. God, we pray for people just moving into this area in West Michigan that they would find community in the bride of you, Jesus, your church, and they'd find a sense of deep belonging and purpose here. God, we pray. We pray for people who have called themselves Christians to meet you, Jesus, potentially for the first time. It's the cry of our heart. You know the cry of each one of our hearts. Spirit, may we articulate those words to you this week. Our hearts are yours. And Jesus, it's in your resurrection power we pray. Amen.